Hello, and welcome to the Ethics of Literature. Today we are taking on one of Tolkien's short and relatively unknown works, Leaf by Niggle. Um, this is a short story that can be found in the Tales from the Perilous Realm collection. That's where I'll be reading from, so anytime I use page numbers, that's what you can plan on finding. Um, but you can find it online, I'm pretty sure. It is fairly easy to track down, even if you do not have a copy of any of Tolkien's sort of... Uh, beyond Lord of the Rings kind of work. Um, but I want to look at this really, really deeply. And there are a few reasons that I want to talk about this. Uh, first and foremost, again, we're going to be spending most of this lecture series talking about literature. Um, and we are going to be operating from the assumption that you are already doing all of the analysis and interpretation on your own. I'm not going to necessarily walk through each step of that process here. Um, I'm going to assume that you can pick up the same stuff that I'm picking up uh, from these books and then, you know, talking about them the way that our authors are talking about them. Um, so, again, interpretation is going to be an assumption in this discussion. Um, and most of the time in this class, we're not going to get the time to actually like sit and talk about the ethical points or, you know, the, the details of one or another great work of literature. We're just going to have our writers name drop these things, whether it's Anna Karenina or Oliver Twist or Huck Finn or whatever, and immediately act like this is common knowledge that everybody has. But I know that that's not necessarily something that all of my listeners are accustomed to doing. Um, so with that in mind, I like the idea a lot of starting this class with a short story, i.e. something very digestible with a clear ethical sort of goal in mind that we can interpret the living crap out of and sort of use as our, like, statement of purpose slash establishing of method when it comes to how do we get an ethical or moral thesis from a work of literature which is usually considerably considerably more complicated, um, more difficult to interpret than, say, a work of philosophy or, you know, a work of literary criticism like we'll be talking about soon. Um, the other thing is, this is not just a work of literature with ethical implications. This is a work of literature that has its own sort of philosophy and thoughts on the ethics surrounding art and literature. So this work actually gets bonus points there. Um, it's not only a work that we sh can and should be interpreting, uh, can and should be using as a model for how we understand and get meaning out of literature, but also an excellent sort of take on literature in its own right. Um, Tolkien here is very much talking very explicitly about art. Um, about his relationship to art on a personal level, as well as the sort of overarching worth of art on a theological and allegorical level. Um, and it's worthwhile to note that this is Tolkien writing. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, whatever that Rings of Power show that Amazon is currently running. Like, this is his world that we are dwelling in, and almost all of contemporary fantasy has Tolkien at its root, he is probably one of the most important, if not one of the greatest authors of the uh, 20th century. Like, he's a huge deal. Um, and his thoughts about art tend to be couched. Um, 
unlike C.S. Lewis, who is pretty straightforward with his literary criticism and his thoughts on, on how art works and, you know, where art lands in the whole reckoning of, of the universe, like, as much as Lewis is willing to do theology on a fairly regular basis, Tolkien was always more resistant to that idea, um, and even chided Tol or Lewis a couple of times for being too theological and sort of overreaching his, his sort of purview as a literature professor, um, basically saying that it was not his, Lewis's, or for that matter, Tolkien's job to go around telling people what to believe about Christianity. So when Tolkien does include Christian elements in his writing, it's usually either very, very couched, i.e., you know, there is in fact a god at the basis of the whole Lord of the Rings, like, greater mythology and world building, but you very rarely see direct references to him or how exactly he operates, or he very rarely, like, does direct action in the course of the books, preferring to work by intermediaries. But if you read The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, you will see many, many references to, you know, wow, that was really lucky, or in Gandalf will say something like, oh, it wasn't luck at all, you know, ho, ho, ho. Like, Tolkien is frequently talking about God, and to some degree he's also very much talking about art in a lot of these works. Um, he's just very reluctant to come out and say anything directly. Um, the two works where Tolkien seems most direct about art, where he's most willing to talk about sort of art and its value and its worth, are here in Leaf by Niggle, and I would argue in Mythopoeia, a poem that I've taken apart in another lecture for another class. Um, you could definitely make a case that On Fairy Stories is also super direct, but Tolkien is less interested in the prescriptive notions of art there than in the descriptive notions. And I imagine we'll be bumping into on fairy stories here, so quick reminder, we have a lot of supplementary reading for this class, stuff that you should probably know or be somewhat familiar with, maybe, you know, take a Cliff's Notes. Uh, on fairy stories, Mythopoeia, and Lord of the Rings broadly are going to be very important to our discussion today, um, to say the least. Um, but what I need to emphasize about Leaf by Niggle especially is that this is one of the few times that we are going to see Tolkien dabble in allegory. Um, in On Fairy Stories, Tolkien specifically says that he has a cordial dislike of allegory, that he's not very fond of it, and that he is... Kind of, ever since he was old enough to learn to detect it, he's kind of preferred not to read or, for that matter, to write allegory. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, when I'm talking about allegory, I'm talking about, like, especially Christian one-to-one -one literary references to either the understanding of Christianity or to, say, political events going on, think George Orwell's Animal Farm, anytime that a complete work of literature is basically serving as a retelling or a reimagining or a reconfiguration of a theological or political system, we're talking about allegory. Um, and Leaf by Niggle is the most allegorical of Tolkien's works so far as I've encountered them. He must have put aside his cordial distaste here and taken an actual stab at it. Um, but since this is allegory, we're going to treat this as though it is a one-to-one -one understanding of, or one-to-one -one sort of like, recognition of Tolkien's 
greater theological system here. We are going to be sort of tearing away the literary devices that Tolkien typically uses in his work to couch his ideas about God and theology and look at them straight in the face, or at least treat this as though we are looking at them straight in the face, because it's really hard to read this otherwise here. Um, but since we are going to be approaching this work with such a granular look at Tolkien's philosophy and Tolkien's understanding of literature and art, we need to get our facts straight. So what we're going to do in this lecture, what we're going to do in sort of interpreting and understanding what Leaf by Nigel means both to us and to its writer and more broadly, we're going to talk about this, we're going to basically tell the story according to about four or five different lenses here. Um, we're going to look at it as an actual work of literature, as a story in its own right, although admittedly very briefly. We're going to look at it as an allegory and make those one-to-one -one connections to the things that Tolkien is referencing. We're going to look at it personally. How does this interact with, pers with Tolkien's own life, his own interest in art, his own like relationship to religion? And we're going to look at this ethically. What is Tolkien saying to us, and for that matter to himself, about the worth of art and the value of his grand Middle-earth project um, in order to understand exactly what this means for artists going forward and what Tolkien is trying to tell both us and them about the way that art can and should work. So, this is a big project. Like, this is admittedly only like a 30-page short story, so fortunately that gives us plenty of, you know, Plenty of, like, time to, to work on all of the granular details. Um, but we're going to be reading this one real, real deeply. Um, and not just because I think it's worth it. Like, it is an excellent story in my opinion, and it certainly, you know, is very revealing about Tolkien's perspective. But this is also a personal one for me. Like, as an artist, as someone trying to do something akin to Tolkien's project here, I am very interested in what Tolkien has to say. Not just as a writer, but as... A Christian and as a moral exemplar in his own right. Um, and that's how we're going to read this. We are going to see this as an authority, whether or not Tolkien deserves it, and that question will definitely be up in the air for a lot of this conversation. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk plot. Um, on its face, this is a story about Niggle, who is apparently an artist, kind of. Like, he's not being paid for his art. He is very much an amateur in his own right. Um, he is not in any way, like, professional or, you know, hired by patrons or anything like that. He just likes painting. So he paints stuff. Um, specifically, we are told that he is better at painting leaves than trees. He doesn't have necessarily some grand image for his art. Um, but eventually it develops into a grand image. That while, you know, Niggle is playing around with certain leaves on certain trees and just trying to get the, the way that the light bounces off this particular leaf just so, eventually his painting starts to get, uh, like, carried away. And instead of drawing just one leaf, now he, that leaf is actually part of a tree, and that tree is part of, like, a forest, and that forest is part of this whole landscape vista, and there are birds that come in the trees, and there's a stream that goes by, and, like, we have gone from I really like painting leaves to I have this big, grandiose concept of an entire world that I am trying to depict, um, and Niggle very much gets caught up in trying to depict this world. This is his painting. This is the big project. This is what all of his earlier efforts have kind of been working up to. But 
Niggle has a problem. Namely, Niggle is frequently getting distracted from his grand work of art, his masterpiece tree plus, you know, surrounding world, um, and is instead being forced to deal with all of these what he calls interruptions. Um, and these interruptions are probably best exemplified in the person of Parrish, his neighbor. Um, Parrish is lame. That's the word that Tolkien uses here. Um, I'm not going to try and get into the ableist notions here. There are reasons why Tolkien is using this word, and we should respect those reasons in this particular case. Um, Parrish can't walk. Parrish can't necessarily do the sorts of things that, uh, that Niggle can do. So as a consequence, Niggle is pretty frequently being asked to or encouraged to help Parrish in one way or the other. Um, we're even told as he leaves for his journey that it is the law for him to help Parrish. It is his job to help Parrish with the things that Parrish himself can't do. But Niggle wants to be working on his big painting project, so most of the time when Parrish comes over, Niggle sees this as an interruption. Especially because, and Tolkien emphasizes this, Parrish values things that Niggle does not value and does not value the things that Niggle does value. So when Parrish comes in, he is most often going to make some critical comment about how Niggle needs to keep up his garden, something that Parrish is very keen to remind everyone about and something that Parrish is himself very invested in. Like, your garden is out of control, there are all these weeds all over the place, you need to, you know, pull out all the weeds and take care of all this stuff. But when he sees the painting, it is just nonsense to him. It is just lines on a canvas. It is worthless. So there's Niggle climbing up his ladder to put the finishing touches on some tiny little leaf at the top of his painting. Parrish comes in and says, hey, dude, you should be working on your garden, or I need help with my roof, or whatever. And apparently Niggle is just frustrated and swears under his breath and is really annoyed by the fact that Parrish needs all this help all of the time. Um, this comes to a head in this big final climactic request from Parrish, where Parrish's wife is apparently sick with, he swears, it's fever, it's really bad, and he really needs Niggle to ride out to town and get the doctor, because Parrish himself, again, is lame and can't get there, get there himself. So Niggle gets on his bicycle in all the wind and the rain, and he catches a chill on the way to getting the doctor, and it turns out that Parrish's wife really only had a cold, and she's up and about the next day anyhow. Niggle has made himself really sick for the sake of Parrish's wife, who wasn't really all that sick at all. Um, so we get a pretty good idea of who Parrish is here. He is needy. He is constantly asking Niggle for help, and in the process, Niggle can't do the things that Niggle really wants to do, namely perfect this painting that he's working on. Um, all of this really comes to a head, though, because Niggle, as we're told at the very outset of this story, is getting ready to go on this big journey. We're not given very much information about the journey. We're just told it is, you know, scheduled to happen. There is no way around it. He can't avoid it. And the closer that Niggle gets to his journey, the more pressing his needs are. Um, the more, the worse he wants to work on his painting to the exception and exclusion of all of these supposed interruptions or distractions. So when Niggle, in fact, goes out on his epic bicycle journey to get the doctor for Parrish and his wife we're told that he knows, like deep in his heart of hearts, that this is actually going to be it. That as a consequence, he is giving up the last opportunity he has to finish his painting, and he's not going to be able to put the finishing touches on his work. This thing that he cares deeply about will be, as the driver puts it, 
finished with, even if it isn't properly finished. Um, and that's what happens. Like, as Niggle is finally getting up from being sick and sort of looking over his painting, but apparently we're not in the mood for painting right now, that's when first the Inspector of Houses comes in and tells him, dude, you haven't been taking care of your neighbor's house. Like, haven't you noticed that there's water coming in and he asked you to help and, you know, you didn't help? And Niggle's like, well, what was I supposed to do? I was sick. And the guy's like, well, you're not sick now. Why aren't you going over there patching this place up? And Niggle's like, I don't have the materials for it. And he's like, sure you do. There's a bunch of canvas, there's a bunch of paint, which we need to emphasize from the perspective of the building inspector and from Parrish's perspective that stuff, the canvas and paint, could have been better used helping people with their houses than it would be making these silly pictures in, in Niggle's room. Um, but even the inspector of houses doesn't get to properly chastise him because at that moment the driver shows up. And the driver tells him, time to go on your big, important journey that we've been talking about this whole mob, this whole story. And Niggle's like, oh no, I'm not prepared for it. And he immediately grabs the first thing to hand, which is just a bag of his paints, which he immediately loses once he's on the train anyway. Um, once he gets off the train, though, he's very disoriented. He's in this very dark place, apparently. We're not told very much about it, besides that it's just this station connected to, apparently, this workhouse, because he didn't bring anything with him, and is therefore supposed to be, like, boarded to the expense of the state. And he works his butt off. For years, we are told that it feels like a century. We'll come back to that. Um... For this century, he is apparently just painting boards all the same color, fixing things, doing odd jobs around this hospital or workhouse or whatever. Um, we're sort of invited to compare it to any of, number of these things. Um, at long last, as soon as he's starting to like get good at managing his time and doing all of these odd jobs, they switch it up on him again, and then he's just digging holes day after day after day after day, just miserable, ugly, drudgery work. But, right during this, you know, digging holes period, he is once again interrupted. He's lying in the dark doing nothing, when apparently he overhears this medical board or something, we're told, with this first voice and the second voice, who are debating about Niggle's fate. And while the first voice seems pretty eager to condemn Niggle for all the things that he has screwed up over the course of his life and how poorly he's treated Parrish, the second voice very much emphasizes that, on the one hand, there is a worth to what Niggle has been doing with all of this painting business. On page 298 it says, he was a painter by nature, in a minor way of course, still a leaf by Niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with leaves just for their own sake, but he never thought that that made him important. We will come back to that as well. From the second voice's perspective, apparently there is some worth to his art, but even more than that, the second voice notices that Niggle did in fact sacrifice himself for the parish's sake, even though it was ridiculous and, and at the end of the day kind of worthless, that Parrish was making it out to be worse than it was, um, and that Niggle has in fact over many occasions helped Parrish out even when he wanted to be working on his bigger project. So, as a consequence, the first voice ultimately capitulates to the second voice. We'll talk about that, too. The second voice ultimately concludes that it's time for gentle treatment, and Niggle is immediately shipped off, at which point he comes to this rolling series of hills and discovers, bam, his painting. Not as a painting, but realized in actuality. The actual landscape, the actual world that he was trying to capture, that he was trying to paint is in fact here. And his gentle treatment apparently involves going around his world that he had imagined or invented, 
we'll come back to that as well, and figuring out how to make it better, how to properly finish with it now even though it is already finished question mark um, and that involves doing all the things that he's learned to do in the meantime i.e planting all those trees and flowers and doing all the gardening that parish had been telling him to do and that he learned to do in the workhouse but hadn't really prioritized when he was you know hanging around with parish before his big journey and eventually niggle realizes in fact, pretty quickly, Niggle realizes that not only was the original painting largely concocted with Parrish's help, something that we are not really, you know, explained and just is kind of left to its own uh, interpretation, but also that he needs Parrish to complete the work that he's doing here in his gentle treatment place. And lo and behold, there's Parrish waiting for him, and between the two of them, they cooperate to perfect this area. So on... But here it is reversed, I should emphasize that, um, where it used to be Niggle, you know, trying to get his painting done while Parrish kept interrupting him in order to get work done. Now Niggle is the one doing all of the work, and Parrish, by contrast, is largely the one sort of walking around, musing, looking at this world, making suggestions, identifying the ways that it could be improved. Together they do, in fact, make this place better, which... Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works. We'll come back to it, but like, let's just leave it there that both of them need to do the work, and we'll come up to the granular details later. Um, eventually, Niggle, though, decides to walk off into the mountains, and he leaves our story, at which point we are treated to two sort of epilogues or afterthoughts. So Parrish is left behind to continue the work that, start, that was started here, as well as to await, for, await his wife. Um, Niggle himself goes off into the mountains, never to be seen again. Um, and then we have these two sort of epilogues. One from the perspective of these characters we've never encountered before, even though one of them apparently knew Niggle, um, who are apparently, like, business folk. Counselor Tompkins, who very much is emphasizing how important Niggle is or is not to society. And Atkins, who is, you know, some useless schoolmaster. Um, both of them debating the worth of Niggle's work in his life. Atkins himself, however, rescues one of the leaves from Niggle's painting once it blows off of, you know, Parrish's house where it has been employed to fix the leaks. Um, and he saves it, puts it in a museum, Leaf by Niggle, hence our title, at which point the museum burns down and it is lost forever and nobody ever talks about Niggle again. Womp womp. Um, but we also get the story from the first and second voices perspective, and how apparently Niggles Parish, as this area with the tree and the rolling hills and so on is eventually called, is serving to apparently introduce people. Um, as the second voice puts it, for many it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I'm sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. Um... So as a consequence, there is a use to this, apparently. Niggles Parish and the painting that Niggles started in before his journey was apparently valuable at the end, even if it wasn't appreciated in its own time or by the people left behind when Niggles leaves on his journey. So that's the basic story that we're being told here. That is the summary of what is going on. 
So let's talk about what this means, because if it isn't obvious, there's a lot going on here, and there are a lot of very clear parallels to what Tolkien is thinking about. Remember, Tolkien's a Christian. This is kind of one of the first things you have to assume going into his work, and it is almost certainly the key to unlocking so much of his work and how we're supposed to understand and interpret it, or how he himself thought of his work, especially in this story. So let's just make some of these one-to-one -one comparisons right here and right now. Um, the journey is niggle dying. Like, this is very obvious. It is something that is, you know, not necessarily scheduled, but is very clearly hanging over Niggle's head. Um, he is responsible for a lot of stuff before he, in fact, dies, before he is, in fact, taken on his grand journey. And most importantly, he has to take care of his neighbor, Parrish. Which you'll notice, his name literally is Parrish, i.e. the word that has historically been used to describe the community that you are a part of when you are a Christian. So Niggle is responsible for Parish, just as any Christian is responsible for their community and is responsible for being involved with and taking care of their community. This is the whole love thy neighbor stuff that you find in Christianity all of the time. Niggle is responsible for Parish, even though Parish is annoying and even though Parish gets in the way and interrupts him all the time. And I should emphasize that from Tolkien's perspective, to say that Parrish is lame indicates that the community is going to take more from Niggle than they are going to offer, which is a little rough. Um, we will come back to that. But suffice it to say, from Tolkien's perspective and from the allegorical interpretation this story very much lends itself to, we are invited to think of Niggle as a Christian who is also an artist trying to balance the needs of both of these responsibilities. The responsibilities to his parish, to his community, the people who need things from him, and the art that he feels compelled to do for its own reason. So he is trying to balance all of these responsibilities before he dies, and he's trying to do the best that he can before he dies. But you'll notice that Niggle, for all of you know Tolkien's apparent identification with this character, he is not necessarily a great Christian. He screws up a lot. Um, not just insofar as he doesn't take Parrish's suggestions about his own yard seriously, or the fact that he's pretty slow to help Parrish when Parrish, in fact, needs help, but also you'll notice that Niggle spends a lot of time swearing under his breath and grumbling and being really grumpy with Parrish for all of these things that Parrish requests from him. Um, we notice that Parrish isn't necessarily a great sort of, like... Gauge of his own need. He frequently sends Niggle off on these sort of boondoggle, ridiculous missions that don't need to be done at all. So, you know, Parrish is the one urging Niggle to go to the doctor when his wife isn't actually sick. Um, we should notice that, you know, Niggle is responsible to Parrish, but Parrish is taking advantage of Niggle. Both of these things are true. Um, we should also note that after Niggle, quote, dies, after our main character moves on to the next stage of his existence, he goes to the workhouse, a place that is described alternately as a hospital, a prison, a workhouse, you name it. This almost certainly is purgatory. And purgatory is going to be the setting for the rest of our story. Like, even the gentle treatment that is talked about by the second voice almost certainly is purgatory. If there is a heaven here, it is beyond the mountains that Niggle ascends, and you'll note that Tolkien very quickly denies any knowledge or any effort to try and understand heaven. 
Um, whatever that is, is beyond Tolkien's scope as an artist, as a theologian. Again, this is where Tolkien sees the line. He is absolutely willing to talk about purgatory here. He is absolutely willing to describe what purgatory is likely going to be for Niggle and theoretically by extension for himself. But he is not going to go so far as to describe, you know, what heaven looks like. We are not Dante here. Um, but that itself is kind of significant. If the world that we see after Niggle's journey is purgatory, we should note that it comes in many varieties. On the one hand, we have the actual workhouse, like Niggle doing all of these odd jobs, learning to manage his time better, all of this being part of this Catholic notion of purgatory as sort of perfecting you and purging yourself of sin. That's important. Like, we'll note that Tolkien even says earlier on in the story that, like, in addition to the various interruptions that Niggle has to deal with, he is willing to admit that Niggle also suffers from just fits of idleness. There are times where he doesn't want to do anything. Um, and as a consequence, we're, he's sort of implying here that, like, we're dealing with sloth, too. Niggle is not perfect. He is a sinner in his own right. Um, he would not be just this perfectly, like, you know, busy and productive artist if given the chance. Um, even if Parrish were to leave him alone, even if he were to get his, you know, like patronage and, and you know, a, a, like living on this stuff, um, he would not be able to necessarily use it terribly well. And this is the first thing that they get rid of. Like, notice when, in fact, Niggle goes to purgatory, when he is, in fact, being purged of his sinful nature, he is being responsible for doing all of these jobs. Um, he is responsible for managing his time. Um, and that specific detail about painting boards all one color seems like a particularly keen reminder that Niggle's painting ability could have been used differently for the good of Parish and for the good of the community. Um, this is also why Tolkien emphasizes that it feels like a century. Um, in Catholic theology, purgatory can take centuries, if not millennia, to sort of get through, uh, depending on, you know, what the theology of the time tends to argue. Um, but we should also emphasize that purgatory is very Catholic. Um, Protestants don't have a notion of purgatory. They assume that the whole business of, like, purging yourself of sinfulness happens immediately upon death. I'm not going to get into the specific theological details here. Um, purgatory is, for many Catholics, understood to be a workhouse. Um, it is the place where you make yourself fit for spending time in heaven. And this is a long and involved process, and a difficult and painful one. Um, and again, Tolkien emphasizes that it is work. It is long, interminable, seemingly pointless work. Um, and when Niggle moves on to just digging holes all the time, we see how apparently pointless this is, and Tolkien even drops a couple of hints in the text that really it isn't the work that needs to be done, but Niggle is making himself better by doing the work. Just as this is a workhouse, it is also a hospital. This is how Niggle is fixing himself in some sense. For many years, Niggle has preferred his idle pursuits of painting over the jobs that needed to be done and failing to manage his time properly. This is the first lesson he has to learn, and the only solution to this sort of sloth, idleness, and bad time management is to get him focused 100% of the time on the stuff that needs to be done, not the art that he wants to do. Um, Niggle needs to be fixed, in short. And this is the way that it is, in fact, fixed. Um, 
But this is where we come to the first and second voice. And here we have another pretty clear allegorical interpretation. Um, according to Christian theology, when the actual final judgment happens, when a soul is determined whether it is in the book of life or not, whether it is going to go to heaven or not, this usually takes the form of a debate between God the Father and God, i.e. Jesus the Son. Um, Jesus is the advocate, Jesus is the defender, Jesus is the one that we appeal to and who will then appeal to God the Father. As Paul tells us, no one is holy, not one, the wages of sin is death, and therefore we all deserve death, but not for our own merit, but from Jesus we are guaranteed eternal life. So in the debate between the first and second voice, you will notice the first voice is taking the role of God the Father here, pointing out all of Niggle's flaws, all of the things that he has screwed up, all of the times that he could have done better and didn't, but the second voice, i.e. Jesus, is the one who is putting the best spin on it. Um, and for that matter, the first voice emphasizes that's his job. Like, that is what you are supposed to do. Um, like, when the, the first voice like mentions this to the second voice he specifically says you know let me see if i can find the passage uh page 299 to 300 i think you put it too strongly said the first voice but you have the last word it is your task of course to put the best interpretation on the facts sometimes they will bear it what do you propose so while the first voice is clearly the one with the greater authority here, he is also not the one who gets the last word. The second voice, it's his job to put Niggle in the best light, to interpret Niggle's work according to its best foot. Um, and the second voice argues that there is a lot that Niggle has done to in fact warrant the gentle treatment that he is prescribing here. So let's actually just take this passage apart, because this is a really important passage for understanding how exactly Niggle is being valued. It's one that's going to come up a lot in our later discussions as well. So page 298, now the Niggle case, said a voice, a severe voice, more severe than the doctor's. So this is God who we're talking about. Let's talk about Niggle. What was the matter with him, said a second voice, a voice that you might have called gentle, though it was not soft. It was a voice of authority and sounded at once hopeful and sad. Notice that these are the virtues and merits, the things that Tolkien apparently associates most closely with Jesus, and this is probably the passage that should alert us to the fact that we're dealing with God and Jesus here. Um, what was the matter with Niggle, the second voice asks. His heart was in the right place. Yes, but it did not function properly, said the first voice, and his head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He was moderately well off, and yet he arrived here almost destitute and had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I am afraid. I think he should stay some time yet. Now, notice the judgment that is being laid here by the first voice, by God, um, as we're interpreting it here. Yes, his heart was in the right place. The second voice is true on this point. Both of them are saying true things across the board, you'll notice. Um, neither of them are going to reject or refute one another. At no point does the second voice say, no, we're not going to do X, we're going to do Y. And at no point does the first voice say, we're going to make him do this I don't care what you have to say about it. This is the relationship that they have. This is the way that Tolkien envisions God and Jesus. I actually find it really insightful here. Um, but we should also notice what God is leveling as charges on Niggle's head. Um, his heart was in the right place, the second voice tells us, but it did not function properly. 
His head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever fought at all. So here we have, yes, Niggle was charged with many responsibilities. He did not take care of them in a way that was good or even terribly useful. Um, yes, he wanted to do good. He wanted to help Parrish. We're told earlier on in the story that like, he had trouble saying no to his various visitors, guests, people who needed his help, all of those things, even if he grumbled and fought and swore under his breath about it. Um, we recognize, yes, his heart was in the right place. He couldn't say no to these things. He wanted to be helpful. He wanted to do these good things. But he frequently failed at it. Um, he frequently was a hypocrite about it. He didn't do things correctly. Like, Niggle himself remembers when he's sitting in the workhouse that one time that if he had just gone to Parrish's place right after the storm, before Parrish actually came over to help, to help him out, then he could have fixed the roof very quickly before it got worse, before the water started coming in, prevented Parrish's wife from becoming sick, prevented himself from having to go out into that storm, and therefore being able to avoid getting sick and having a whole week at his or of extra time to work on his project. Niggle knows this at this point, and this is what we are getting at here. If Niggle had managed his time better, if Niggle had quit trying to do his painting and instead just did the job that was in front of him, he would have successfully done the job and done his painting all at once. That's what we mean here. The heart was in the right place, but he went about it badly. That's what is sinful about him, and that's why the first voice argues, look at the time he wasted not even amusing himself, he never even got ready for his journey. Like, in theory, Niggle should have been better prepared for his journey than he was. He did, in fact, have bags that he had been working on packing for a long while, which I'm not entirely sure what the allegorical reference is here. Like, this is either a nuance of, Christ of Catholic theology I'm, aware I'm not aware of, or it is sort of not in service to the allegory. Um... At any rate, it's clear that Tolkien is telling us that Nickel had many opportunities to be better prepared for this journey and wasn't. Um, he could have come to Purgatory with a lot of better arguments in hand for his own deserving of gentle treatment and didn't. Because he was disorganized, because he didn't manage his time well, because he like had his priorities screwed up, however you want to explain it. Um, a bad case, I am afraid, I think he should stay some time yet. And we should notice, when the first voice says, I think he should stay here some time yet, this is, this is not going to be overruled. Like, the second voice does not re reject the idea that, yeah, he should stick around for a while. He is putting his best foot forward, he's trying to explain Niggle in the best light possible, but the first voice makes this judgment early on in, in this discussion, and it is not overturned. Niggle will stay in purgatory for quite a while yet, but it will be very differently administered. That's the key. It would not do him any harm, perhaps, said the second voice. Meaning, yes, he should probably stay in purgatory, it will almost certainly help more. But, of course, he is only a little man. He was never meant to be anything very much, and he was never very strong. So, note, again, and I've talked about this elsewhere, this is very much the sort of reference to, like, the parable of the talents, this idea that we are all given talents, given responsibilities by God, and it is ours to discharge them as we see fit. But it is not, or, like, we are responsible for using them in the best way possible, using them to the glory of God and the greatness of his kingdom. What we are being told here is that Niggle was not given much. 
know, he is not the, the servant who receives ten talents and told to invest them wisely. He's the servant who would receive only one or three. Um, he was not given very much. He was not given a whole lot of ability. And as a consequence, not a whole lot was expected of him, which we'll come back to that. But let us look at the records. Yes, there are some favorable points, you know. Perhaps, said the first voice, but very few that will really bear examination. Well, said the second voice, there are these. He was a painter by nature. In a minor way, of course, still a leaf by niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with leaves just for their own sake, but he never thought that that made him important. There is no note in the records of his pretending, even to himself, that it caused his neglect of things ordered by the law. Then he should not have neglected so many, said the first voice. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, first and foremost, we're being told by the second voice that he was a painter, that he was designed to be a painter, that he was given the gifts of being a painter, but a minor painter. He is no Caravaggio, he is no Michelangelo, he is no Leonardo da Vinci. He is that painter who lives, you know, on the weird town in, or weird street near town who nobody ever sees and, you know, sells his work for 20, 30 bucks a pop to local restaurants. Like, he is not an important, like, groundbreaking, theologically masterful painter. He just has a little job to do as far as that goes. What is more important to the second voice is that there is no note on the records of his pretending, even to himself, that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. That he never thought that being a painter made him important. This is a big deal. Christianity will emphasize often that pride is the cardinal sin, that thinking too much of yourself or, you know, prioritizing yourself before the needs of the kingdom, before God and his commands, that's the worst sin that you can commit. And the second voice tells us here that Nigel was not guilty of that particular sin, that he avoided the sin of pride. He recognized that he was an artist, he frequently wanted to prioritize his art over his other responsibilities, but he did not at any time think that being an artist made him important or excused him from those responsibilities. He just wanted to do art. That's a really important distinction and another one that we will come back to. But the first voice emphasizes that he nonetheless ne neglected a lot of his responsibilities, did not treat Parrish the way that he should because he was preoccupied with that art, because he wanted to keep getting back to it. All the same, said the second voice, he did answer a good many calls. A small percentage, mostly of the easier sort, and he called those interruptions. The records are full of the word together with a lot of complaints and silly implications. Note... We are not discussing Niggle's actions necessarily here. We are discussing Niggle's motivations, his thoughts. Both God and Jesus seem way more interested in what Niggle thought about his various responsibilities than whether or not he fulfilled them. They are more upset that Niggle calls them interruptions, sees them as a distraction, sees them as potentially getting in the way of the stuff that he wants to do, rather than the fact that he did not necessarily do them. True, the second voice says, but they look like interruptions to him, of course, poor little man. And there is this. He never expected any return, as so many of his sort call it. There is the parish case, the one that came in later. He was Niggle's neighbor, never did a stroke for him, and seldom showed any gratitude at all. But there is no note in the records that Niggle expected Parrish's gratitude. He does not seem to have thought about it. Again, we are. it is noteworthy that Niggle is, above all, modest. That 
he is not guilty of this sin of pride. That yes, he is doing jobs for Parrish, and yes, he is grumbling about them, he is upset about them, but he doesn't consider himself to be a better person for having completed these things, nor does he expect thanks from Parrish for doing these various jobs, even when they're stupid and pointless, like driving the doctor in the rain in order to save his wife, who actually just has a cold. Um, yes, that is a point, says the first voice, but rather small. I think you will find Niggle often merely forgot. Things he had to do for Parrish he put out of his mind as a nuisance he had done with. So, again, Niggle is not interested in Parrish. Niggle is sort of downplaying Parrish's worth here. Again, we are disputing what is Niggle's worth. Was he, in fact, proud? Did he, in fact, put on airs? As much as we are discussing his abilities as an artist or his you know, the assignments that he's completed for Parish for the Christian community, the good deeds that he was supposed to be doing. Still there is this last report, says the second voice, that wet bicycle ride. I'd rather lay stress on that. It seems plain that this was a genuine sacrifice. Niggle guessed that he was throwing away his last chance with his picture, and he guessed, too, that Parrish was worrying unnecessarily. I think you put it too strongly, said the first voice, but you have the last word. It is your task, of course, to put the best interpretation on the facts. Sometimes they will bear it. What do you propose? I think it is a case for a little gentle treatment now, said the second voice. So at the end of the day, what we are seeing is a debate between God and Jesus over whether or not Niggle was proud of his responsibilities as an artist, proud of his deeds that he did for Parrish, proud of holding up his end of the Christian bargain, so to speak. And once they determined that he really wasn't all that proud at all, the conclusion is not that he gets to be done with purgatory and move straight to heaven, but rather that he is now ready for gentle treatment, a kind of purgatory, a variation on purgatory that is not nearly so demanding or so physically taxing, so exhausting or so annoying as we might understand it. Niggle has moved from digging holes day after day to no end to... Niggles Parish, the place where Niggles' painting has actually been rendered, has actually come to life. Now, we should also emphasize that at the end of this conversation that Niggle is overhearing, when he, has, when he is directly asked, so what do you have to say for yourself, his responsibility is, again in perfect Christian form, demonstrating Niggles' modesty, he's concerned for Parish. Not his painting, not his work, not himself. Can you tell me how Parrish is? I hope he's not very ill. Um, he was a very good neighbor and let me have excellent potatoes, very cheap, which saved me a lot of time. To which the first voice responds, did he? I am glad to hear it. Now, a couple things here. Um, first and foremost, again, this is totally, you know, gold stars, check marks for, for Niggle here in the, the reckoning of heaven. Like, yes, thinking about your neighbor before yourself is definitely a good move on Niggle's part. But we also hear from Parrish that this actually serves to get Parrish in the door faster. Um, like, Parrish is found at, you know, Niggle's painting before Niggle, in fact, gets there, or it's not entirely clear how the time works out here. Um, but Parrish emphasizes that Niggle's good word to the first voice expedited Parrish's trip through purgatory very much so. Um, and on the one hand, we should note that Parrish does stay in purgatory longer than Niggle does at the end of the day, but it also seems to be the case that Parrish doesn't have to do the workhouse business. Because, again, they are opposite in that sense. 
parishes are already accustomed to doing all of the hard work stuff, to doing all of the, you know, ignoble tasks of fixing things and painting boards one color or digging holes. This is not the lesson that parish needs to learn. Importantly, the lesson that Parrish needs to learn is to appreciate the world that he is in at the time. He is supposed to understand and learn how to see beauty, something that Niggle had been doing for a long time to the detriment of his other responsibilities, but something that Parrish never learned to do and as a result needs to be instructed in before he can go to heaven. This is something that Tolkien is emphasizing. This is something that we should be paying attention to as well. Both are necessary in order to get to heaven. You need to be purged of your idleness. You need to be ready to do work at the drop of a hat. You need to know how to manage your time well, and you need to be generous to your neighbor. All of these things Niggle has been failing at, and it takes purgatory to fix that about him. Parrish, on the other hand, doesn't know how to appreciate beauty, doesn't recognize the glory of the universe that he is in, and that is what he is being taught as a consequence. The thing that Parrish needed, Niggle has, and the thing that Niggle needed, Parrish has. And this is especially emphasized when Niggle is in fact walking around his, you know, magical painting become reality place, and on page 303 we're told some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. Again, Tolkien does not elaborate on, on this, but we're invited to see this as Niggle needs Parrish for his art as much as Parrish needs Niggle in order to teach him to appreciate art. Niggle needs Parrish in order to make him a better worker, in order to make him appreciate the thrill and the joy of actually doing good deeds for other people, something that is in fact a necessary part of the whole Christian journey and something that is very much emphasized by the first and second voice and Niggle's trip to, to purgatory. But Parrish also needs Niggle. The artist and the artist's community are both an important part of the divine order of things. The people who work hard under God's grace need to appreciate the beauty of God's grace, and the people who appreciate the beauty of God's grace need to learn how to work hard under God's grace. Both of these things are necessary. The other thing that you'll notice about this passage is that Niggle, when he in fact sees all this, he emphasizes it's a gift, and that he was referring to his art but also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. Again, as Christian theology teaches us, those talents that we're talking about are in fact a gift. They are ours to invest, and we are charged with investing them. It is our job to use them to the best of our ability and to produce fruit with them. But they are, at the end of the day, both talent and product, a gift. What we are being encouraged to think here is that the work that Niggle has been doing, this grand painting that he has been put together, is in fact something that God wants us to see. That this is a collaborative effort on the part of the artist and on the part of the capital C creator. As we see in Mythopoeia, this is what Tolkien describes as that refracted light. That there is this one brilliant white light of God refracted by humanity and these sub-creators, like Niggle, like artists, like writers, who show us the rainbow of all of these lights. Whose job it is to sort of recognize, interpret, and refract 
all of the brilliance of the creation. Niggle is part of that process. Niggle receives his vision of his art as a gift from God, presents it to the world, and then gets to live and dwell in it. And that itself is part of the gift. The work that an artist does is also itself gift, generosity, blessing, inspiration, so to speak. Though we're treading on some theological words here, so perhaps move on and then we'll get into some more interpretation later. So we should also emphasize that there is this sort of reflected distinction here. When Niggle is walking around with his tree in the magical art world, um, he emphasizes that the tree was finished, though not finished with, just the other way about to what it used to be, he thought. Um, remember, when the driver comes, he emphasizes that you are finished with the painting. Like, now Niggle is done, he is going to die, he cannot work on his project anymore, so it is not finished, it is not what Niggle hoped that it would be, but it is finished with. He will not be able to do any more work on it. By contrast, when Niggle comes to this area in Purgatory that reflects his creation, this divine inspiration slash gift, we are told that it is finished, it is perfect, but not finished with. More needs to be done. Which is itself kind of paradoxical, and I don't presume to be able to understand exactly the details here. I suspect Tolkien has an idea in mind, and we will get at some of that a little bit later, but we should definitely emphasize that it is as perfect as it can be, and yet needs more work. And this work is itself, in all likelihood, part of the gift. As we are told by Niggle a little bit later, things might have been different, but they could not have been better. Niggle recognizes that on the one hand, yes, his painting is complete. Like, by, when he arrives here, he recognizes that everything that he had hoped to see, everything that he had hoped to paint, even the things that he had only recognized or thought of for an instant, like the spring hanging out in the background that apparently he only thought of one time many, many years ago and never managed to put into his painting, all of that is present. It is perfected. It is exactly what it is supposed to be. It is exactly as Niggle imagined it. It is exactly as God gave the idea to Niggle in the first place. And yet, more work needs to be done. The image that Niggle had hoped to represent in his painting is here. But now there are a lot of spaces that have been underdeveloped, that need more work. It is finished, but not finished with. It is perfect, or rather, it could not have been better, even if it could have been different. Um... This is probably the biggest theological points that Tolkien is intentionally making here, although we've got more to dissect later, so it's important that we get at that. Um, lastly, in our two epilogues here, we should definitely emphasize that we have, on the one hand, the sort of civil recognition of Niggle's worth as an artist and the civil acknowledgement of art. Namely, we see our particularly grumpy counselor Tompkins emphasizing that painting does have uses, but you couldn't make a use of his painting. There's plenty of scope for bold young men not afraid of new ideas and new methods, none for this old-fashioned stuff. Private daydreaming. He could not have designed a telling poster to save his life, always fiddling with leaves and flowers. I asked him why once. He said he thought they were pretty. Can you believe it? He said pretty. What, digestive and genital organs of plants? I said to him, and he had nothing to answer. Silly footler. 
On the one hand, we're invited to think of the world, the principalities, the government powers represented by Tompkins here as devaluing, especially the kind of art that Tolkien was keen to do, and for that matter that Nickel was keen to do. Nature art is not valuable to them. The two kinds of art that Councillor Tompkins seems especially interested in are young men not afraid of new ideas and new methods, but also a telling poster. Which, on the one hand, we might see this as, you know, avant-garde art, modernist art. You know, Tolkien himself was kind of weirdly acquainted with James Joyce, for example. One of those artists who very much was pushing forward the bounds of art in his time and undoubtedly received a lot of recognition for, uh, for that very reason. But also telling posters. Propaganda. Um, which we'll probably be bumping into later in this discussion broadly, not necessarily during this lecture. Tolkien almost certainly had a very dim view of propaganda. Um, neither of which Tolkien does, neither of which Niggle do, and as a consequence, neither of which Counselor, or Con Counselor Tompkins is not willing to see any merit in him. Now, Atkins, on the other hand, the schoolmaster, who is of no consequence, um, he does recognize there is some beauty to this painting by Niggle, i.e., he puts it in a museum and calls it Leaf by Nickel. And it is, in fact, valued, and people do, in fact, come around and see it, but it's not especially, you know, important. Only a few eyes ever notice it, and finally it's burned down and destroyed, and all of Nickel's work is gone forever. Tolkien seems to have a very dim view of what the worth of great art from the public-slash-government perspective actually is. Undoubtedly, because Tolkien was medievalist, we'll come back to that. But notice, too, that there is a greater worth for this art from the religious perspective. So the second voice tells us that it is proving very useful indeed as a holiday and a refreshment, meaning Niggles Parish, the painting, the magical art world, the gift. Um, it is splendid for convalescence, and not only for that, for many it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I am sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. The second voice clearly emphasizes that this work of art proves to be useful as an introduction to the mountains, i.e. heaven. Because that's where Niggle goes when he is done with his gentle treatment, when he has learned all that there is to learn, and when he has perfected himself, or whatever that means. Wherever heaven lies, no matter how far up the mountains it might actually be, we are told that Niggle, if he's going to get there, is going to get to it over the mountains. So, we are told... Niggle's art, Niggle's parish, this cooperative work of Niggle, the parish that he was responsible for, and God, this is all the way that you can frequently appreciate and has served as a great introduction for many to heaven and the actual glory of God and Jesus, whatever that might actually look like. So there's our allegorical interpretation. If the story is Niggle, small-time artist, goes on journey, ends up working really hard, discovers that his painting is real, and lives happily ever after, sort of, the allegorical interpretation is the artist at work is ultimately collaborating with God and with his parish. Even if he does like neglect his other responsibilities, there is worth to it. And that's what I want to get at next. Um, I want to talk about what this means the way that Tolkien is talking about it. And as a consequence, we're going to kind of look at this one more time, but kind of like from two different lenses simultaneously. First off, I want to talk about what Tolkien himself 
thinks of this work, what Tolkien is communicating about his own ideas and his own sort of perspective, but I also want to talk about what Tolkien is telling us. What is the message here? If we are in fact supposed to read this as allegory, and we are very clearly invited to read it that way, then we also need to understand what the moral is. What is the ethic? What is the message that Tolkien is trying to communicate about both himself and about other artists? Now, on the one hand, I'm not sure we're really encouraged to read this story this way. Like, I think this has deep personal significance for Tolkien, but I suspect that's kind of the end of his own personal, uh, like, his own personal reading of his own story. Like, we have exhausted Tolkien's purposes when we come to what does it mean to him personally. But as a work of art, as a work of literature, other people are going to read this, and other people are going to take this personally, and other artists are going to think about what it means, if only because I do. Um, so let's talk about both of them. What does this mean to, for Tolkien himself? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for our understanding of what is ethical art? Now... For Tolkien, personally, we've got to understand, like, there are so many parallels in this story between Niggle and Tolkien himself. Like, obviously, Tolkien is no painter, he is a writer. But at the same time, the same stuff that Niggle is interested in painting, Tolkien is interested in writing about. Niggle is painting not, you know, engines of industry, the glory of the state, or any of those things that Tompkins would have appreciated. He is instead painting leaves, trees forests and mountains and, you know, some massive landscape that apparently doesn't have any value to anyone but himself. We should also notice that even the method here is surprisingly similar to Tolkien's. Like, Niggle starts with just the painting of the one leaf and then it expands and he's, like, tacking canvas onto his other canvases. This is, like, classic Tolkien. Apparently he was famous for, like, scribbling notes about Middle-earth on napkins and, you know, receipts and basically any paper that he had when he was particularly inspired. And when Christopher Tolkien was, in fact, trying to, like make the Silmarillion. He was basically cobbling together this massive, disorganized just pile of stuff that Tolkien had lying around. This is classic Tolkien, and this is almost certainly is how we're in, in, encouraged to understand Niggle's work as well. So once again, we see clear sort of parallels here. But again, notice Niggle is interested in landscapes, nature, and society is not. Tolkien admittedly isn't well, I mean, Tolkien was very passionate about trees. He apparently wrote numerous letters to various boards and, you know, councils trying to defend particularly old trees in his community. So, yeah, we had, better, had best say that Tolkien and Niggle are definitely on, in comparison on that front. But Tolkien also writes old literature. Like, he deeply loves medieval writing. He is very much interested in the old fairy stories of the Arthurian variety. Like, this is what he loves and admires, these old dead languages, these old dead cultures, these old dead stories and old dead languages from old dead cultures. And he aspires to create his own in that vein. He is not writing the next Ulysses, he is writing the next Song of Roland. Um, he is not interested in the poetry of Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot. He is interested in the poetry of whatever anonymous writer gave us Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, these old stories are consistently Tolkien's inspiration. They are where you will see the most references in The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and The Silmarillion. Tolkien is interested in mythology. Tolkien is interested in ancient cultures. Tolkien is interested in 
the medieval worldview, um, and he very much replicates it, which doesn't earn him a lot of points from literary scholars today or in his own time. There are many who have argued that Tolkien was kind of a hack writer, um, and to this day, if you hang around academia, you will find, like, hardcore defenders of Tolkien, and they will usually be the same people who teach mythology, medieval literature, and other sort of books of that nature. Like, they are kind of informally and collectively referred to as medievalists. Um, but if you hang out in an actual English department, you are more likely to run into scholars of Beckett and Joyce and Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and John Updike, you know, Hemingway and Faulkner and Steinbeck, you know, writers who are widely considered literary in the 20th century, and Tolkien wouldn't be considered one of them. On the one hand, that probably explains at least partially why Tolkien finds this hostility between Councillor Tompkins and the sort of state at large. This could very well be why Parrish doesn't recognize the work that our niggle is doing as art itself. Like, art is supposed to look different, it's supposed to behave differently, it's supposed to, you know, have a different sort of quality. And this might very well be the reason why the second voice says that he is a minor artist that Niggle's work was not very important, that he was not given a lot in the way of gifts, and as a consequence was not expected, you know, to accomplish very much. Um, the one work that survives Niggle's death is Leaf by Niggle, and to some degree, you gotta think that Tolkien is sitting there thinking, yeah, my work is going to enjoy the same fate, yeah, I published a couple of books, a few people will read them, that's the end. Obviously, this could not be further from the truth. Like, there are very few art or authors in the 20th century who have been as widely read as Tolkien. He is, again, frequently considered one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Um, like, maybe, you know, more people value the James Joyce's Ulysses or, like, you know, the, the remembrance of things past. Um, but nonetheless, more actual humans have read Lord of the Rings on the whole than, than most of them, I suspect. Um, and to some degree, I suspect Tolkien was a little bit aware of this and was definitely downplaying his significance, like trying to recognize his own modesty, but at the same time, you gotta kind of wonder if Tolkien is just downplaying himself here. Um, like, he has in fact become a successful writer at this point in his career, I imagine. Um, like, Leaf by Nagel is late enough in his career, if I'm not mistaken, that, like, he would have already gotten a few works published and would sort of be recognized in the literary community. Plus, if Tolkien is insisting on writing these particular stories and not, you know, great modernist works of literature, you have to assume that Tolkien kind of doesn't see the sees more value in those old stories than he does in the, in the ones that people are, in fact, taking as important or worthwhile. So, on the one hand, I have to look at this story and say, you know, as Tolkien's effort to gauge himself, there is a little dishonesty here. Um, maybe I'm reading into it, maybe not. Like, I should emphasize that, you know, anytime that you're talking about modesty and pride, you're ne ev inevitably going to end up looking like a hypocrite. Because if you say that you're proud, then that's actually you being modest. And if you say that you're modest, that's actually you being proud. And here, Tolkien is telling us about how modest Niggle is. We've emphasized that several times. And therefore, if we are supposed to read Niggle as a one-to-one -one for Tolkien, then yeah, that actually makes Tolkien out to be kind of, you know, full of himself. 
Um, but at the same time, what are you supposed to do in this situation if Niggle was in fact a giant jerk and really high on his own artistic merits? Presumably the first and second voice would never have let him into heaven in the first place, and he would have had a lot more work to do, much of which would be even more unpleasant than just digging holes all the time. Um, but we should also notice that Tolkien does see it as deserving punishment. Like, Tolkien does not give himself a free pass into heaven. He has a lot of work to do before he gets there. He recognizes that before he is going to enjoy the benefits of hanging out with God and Jesus, he is going to have to paint a lot of boards and dig a lot of holes and fix a lot of tables. Um, Tolkien recognizes, I have mismanaged my time, I frequently grumble about my earthly responsibilities to my parish, and as a consequence, I will need to be schooled, I will need to be healed, I will need to be fixed, in some sense. Um, but, and this is super important, Tolkien is also gauging the value of his own worth from God's perspective here, and that cannot help but be a little bit demanding, a little bit bold on his part. Like, if Tolkien was cautioning Lewis about writing theology, Tolkien is almost certainly writing theology here when he goes to say that a leaf by niggle has a charm of its own and puts that language in the second voice's mouth, um, argues that Jesus sees art as being itself worthwhile. Um, and when we ultimately conclude the story and Jesus says, hey, actually this is super helpful for understanding how people get into heaven, like, on the one hand, again, I suspect that this is Tolkien sort of not justifying himself to us, but rather sort of imagining the best possible scenario for his own work. Like, as much as I struggle to understand this as, like, manifesto versus apology versus, like, I don't know exactly how to take it, for Tolkien to say, yeah, actually art is super important and gets people into heaven, or is an important introduction to getting into heaven, that's pretty bold on Tolkien's part, and may very well be well overstepping his, his supposed boundaries as a writer and not a theologian. Um, but importantly, that's the takeaway here. There is worth for art. Mitigated though it is, because again, remember, it's not Niggle's creation that is being praised here, it's Niggle in cooperation with God, in cooperation with Parrish, and the first words out of Niggle's mouth when he sees his creation realized is, it is a gift, which is absolutely the appropriate reaction and absolutely what Tolkien wants to emphasize there. Um, we need to recognize that we are saying that art is not just worthwhile, but important. That, yes, somehow there is more worth to the canvas with all of its silly paint, the leaves and the tree that is depicted by Tolkien um, as being in Niggle's shop, than it is when it is, you know, strapped to Parrish's roof keeping out the rain. What we are looking at here is not some sort of pure benefit to society understanding of the value of art. Like, Tolkien very much recognizes and argues that society does not appropriately value art at all. Counselor Tompkins doesn't care about any art besides propaganda or, you know, whatever the new literary novelty of the moment is. But Tolkien's art does have worth. It has worth in the greater Christian underlying metaphysical sense, um, and therefore can serve as a help to get people into heaven. And I suspect that what Tolkien is 
sort of suggesting here is that he is doing his Christian work by creating a world comparable to heaven, and that sort of invites us to see heaven the way that Tolkien does. As much as The Lord of the Rings and as much as The Hobbit is not about Christianity, the underlying assumptions of all of these works are, at the end of the day, Christian. And Tolkien makes this explicit in the text as well as in his work on fairy stories. In the text, in when you read the greater like business of the Middle-earth, stories, you'll notice that there are certain things that always come to pass. The good guys always win. Hope is always rewarded. Daring and friendship are always rewarded. Um, evil does not triumph, even though it will make everybody really miserable for a long time. And notice that it is usually God helping out in those situations. Frodo lacks the strength to throw the ring into Mount Doom, but with the cooperation of Gollum, who again, like Niggle and Parrish, the two of them together accomplish this great feat, though admittedly not willing in this case, Gollum's evil you know, does in fact destroy the ring, but it does not intentionally destroy the ring, the ring is destroyed nonetheless. God's plan is that evil will ultimately be turned to good here. And what Tolkien is doing is setting up a world where the truths of Christianity, and this one is basically like straight up Thomas Aquinas when in his you know argument against like the problem of evil, where he's like, okay, so if God exists, why does evil exist? Well, because God is so awesome that he can turn evil into good. That's exactly what Tolkien is depicting there, and that's what Tolkien is arguing about his own work as well. As much as Niggle makes a lot of mistakes and has to work off all of that time in Purgatory, you'll remember Niggle says it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. This was God's plan. This was the ideal scenario. It, didn't, it wasn't set in stone. It's not fate. It's not like we're all locked into you know, behaving in certain ways. But it all serves to this perfect ideal realization of what God wants the world to be. Whatever evil we do, we are responsible for. And we will have to work off and we will be judged accordingly. But, importantly, God will fix it in the end. It will all ultimately redound to God's glory. This is all over Tolkien's writing. It's in Leaf by Niggle, very obviously. It's in Mythopoeia. It's in The Lord of the Rings. And all of those people who love The Lord of the Rings and are not themselves avowed Christians are being encouraged and invited to understand and appreciate Christianity. Tolkien, at the end of the day, does not see himself as a missionary, does not see himself as an evangelist, but he does see himself as, just as Niggle does, introducing people to a more palatable version of Christian truth and heaven. The Lord of the Rings is a place where things go right, where the world justifies its own existence, where God saves the day, where eucatastrophe, as he puts it in on fairy stories, is a guarantee. The realm of fairy guarantees a happy ending, even if it is undeserved. This is what Tolkien's stories promise as well. And by reading those, we are introduced, however obliquely, to heaven, to Christianity, and Tolkien's very firmly understood version of it. And Tolkien sees that here as his mission. As much as he would probably 
he does in fact need to do things for his parish, and he does need to recognize that the responsibilities he has to his neighbor, to his parish, to the people who ask things of him, to the responsibilities that he has, must at some point come before his dabbling around with paint and canvas, his mucking about with the Middle-earth stories. He also recognizes that there is a profound worth to those Middle-earth stories, and importantly, a greater worth in the long run than is necessarily the case with all that other little stuff he's doing. You know, Niggle's garden is not represented in Purgatory. It is not invited, it is not told to us as, you know, being some important part of the cosmos that introduces people to heaven the way that Niggle's art does. So Niggle's art does have this lasting importance, this greater worth. You know, as Tolkien says in Mythopoeia, even in heaven, the creative effort, the artistic job is not done. We will still make stuff in heaven. Poets will still have flames on their heads, as he puts it. Um, here that is obvious. Niggle continues to create even in purgatory, presumably even in heaven as well. And importantly, that creation, insofar as it exists on earth, serves as a guide, serves as a pointer, gets us closer to God in its own right. On a personal level, that's what it means to Tolkien. But on a greater level, we need to very much understand what this means about Tolkien's philosophy of art broadly. And we have to recognize that art for Tolkien is a sacred duty. It is a sacred responsibility. We cannot take pride in it. That is very clear here in Leaf by Nagel. Again, modesty is, above all, super important here. But we recognize, as the second voice says, that a leaf by Niggle has a charm of its own. And for that matter, that ultimately the Niggle's parish, the work that Niggle has created in cooperation with parish and God and everyone else who goes and participates there, is ultimately something important to the business of creation altogether. It is one of the paths that people will take on their trek to heaven. That's a lot. Like, as much as Tolkien is trying to play up his own modesty here, it's almost certainly to counterbalance the fact that he is making this wildly proud claim, namely that I am, as artist, am doing something of eternal divine value. Um, but we should also emphasize that's what it looks like. That's what Tolkien understands here, and that is not totally out of the pale of what the Bible and Christian teaching tells us. Now, admittedly, the Bible is not this straightforward about it, nor does art receive the privileged position that Tolkien seemed to put on it here, but it is there. Tolkien's interpretation seems to be somewhat valid. And if it isn't obvious, I struggle with this as well, because it is really hard to find that line. Like, considering how many years I have spent not trying to get my work published and just writing just crap that nobody cares about year after year after year, while other people are asking me to teach classes or to help them out at the church or to help my family or to do any of the other multitude of responsibilities that are out there, it is really hard to justify to yourself, no, actually, I need to sit down and work on this particular story, this particular novel, this particular work, even though nobody gives a crap about it. Like, I feel for Tolkien here a lot. Not necessarily because I am a great underappreciated artist, but because I recognize how friggin' difficult it is to balance these responsibilities and that, you know, this urge in me to create stuff isn't just 
perverse or pernicious. That no, I actually need to do that. Um, even if I'm not being recognized, even if I'm not being paid for it, no, it makes me better, it makes the world better, whatever that might mean. Um, so, again, I read this as a work of ethics, as Tolkien telling me personally what an artist should be doing and should look like. And I recognize, like Tolkien, that that is a difficult needle to thread. That on the one hand, yes, there probably is some grandiose divine worth to an artist doing art and trying to represent the created order of the universe as best as they possibly can. But I should also emphasize that, again, Tolkien isn't doing the same kind of art that everybody else is doing. Tolkien has a very different take on art, just as Nigel has a very different take on painting, something that Tompkins is willing to acknowledge. I am not creating some grandiose universe of Middle-earth that will serve as this fantasy location for many people to sort of explore and get closer to God with. Like, my job is different and I have different problems as far as that worth is concerned. I also, probably like Tolkien, recognize that you can't allow yourself to think this. You can't, again, like one of the reasons that the second voice praises Nigel is because at no point in his career does he think that being an artist excuses him from his responsibilities here on Earth. He is not proud of himself. And again, this is a really, really difficult needle to thread because on the one hand, in order to continue to create art when everybody doesn't care and nobody gives a crap about it and nobody is paying you for it and it's not doing any like discernible good from your limited perspective here on planet Earth while other people are demanding that you, I don't know, like do literally anything else, that's a really hard balance. You've got to be ludicrously egotistical in order to keep writing when nobody gives a crap about your writing but you. Um, at the same time, if you are ludicrously egotistical, your writing is garbage and you become a terrible person and you are ultimately failing in what God is asking you to do, according to Tolkien. So again, a very delicate balance to thread here. But that's what Tolkien is ultimately arguing, ultimately saying. And on the one hand, art is important. Tolkien is not denying this. Tolkien is, if anything, overemphasizing this in this story. Niggle's work has, one, a charm of its own. It has its sort of own internal value. And Niggle, by recognizing the value in and of itself of creation, the worth of a leaf, is in fact respecting and like participating in the divine order. Something that is also emphasized when Parrish is walking around Niggle's Parish, just appreciating art, recognizing the beauty of nature. Tolkien, by writing his particular stories, is encouraging us to appreciate the created order as well. To look at the world from his privileged eye and therefore get a little closer to the divine perspective as well. That's the job of art. And Tolkien frames this in multiple different ways. Like in On Fairy Stories, he explains that this is the business of, quote, escape, where it is not the escape of the deserter, the person who, like, leaves the army because he is shirking his responsibilities, but the escape of the prisoner, i.e. the escape that is appropriate, just, and appropriately longed for. Um, when you are a prisoner, escape is not necessarily a bad thing, especially if you are imprisoned unjustly. Um, you want to live in a different place. You want to be able to get out of your cell. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
What Tolkien is saying is that fantasy, especially fantasy, fairy stories, all of the work that Tolkien himself is very invested in and very committed to doing, provides that escape. Reminds us that this world as is, is fallen and broken and messed up, and we should in fact hope for something more. Now this is itself kind of a confusing idea because the idea itself has been adopted and distorted by art critics over the last like 30, 40 years or so. Um, now that escapism is basically you binging a television show on Netflix for six hours without turning your brain on at all, that's not the escape that Tolkien is talking about, nor is it the escape that Tolkien is justifying here. What Tolkien is encour encouraging is some sort of quasi-divine insider revelation. Um, a recognition that this world is not the limit of our experience and that we are encouraged to hope for more, to want more. The you catastrophe at the end of The Lord of the Rings is a promise. God has your best interests in mind. Just as the you catastrophe at the end of Leaf by Niggle, where Niggle goes over the mountains, is an encouragement that, again, things could have been different, but they could not have been better. This world is designed for our benefit, and we are encouraged to enjoy and to use it as best as we can. We are encouraged to love it, for that matter, as much as the Protestants and the Baptists and the Evangelicals might encourage you otherwise. Tolkien is telling us that trees are holy. And when we forget that trees are holy, we actually get worse in this life. And it takes a work like The Lord of the Rings, where trees walk around and say wise things and, you know, overthrow Isengard are at the end of the day holy as well. They remind us that trees are holy, that they are special, unique, and important. And just as Niggle in, in his painting is showing us how trees are holy, so does that contribute to our understanding of the holiness of heaven. We understand God by looking at trees and mountains and whatever other stuff the Tolkien is interested in, as well as whatever other stuff any artist is interested in. And as a consequence, an artist's job is to represent that, to bring forth the holiness of our life, the reverence that we are exposed that we are supposed to experience. So an ethical artist, by Tolkien's lights here in Leaf by Niggle, is very clearly someone who can do that. Someone who restores or recreates or offers an avenue of escape, something that provides us with reassurance that God is in control, that heaven is out there, and that our hope is warranted. All we need to do is reevaluate our look at the world, reinvest it with meaning, significance, holiness, and that will serve as a reminder that God is there protecting, preserving, and doing that for us. That is the fundamental worth of art for Tolkien. So if you are not doing that kind of art, you are not necessarily doing God's job. Like, not, Tolkien is not going so far as to criticize, again, this is not a formal description of the ethics of literature, but it is certainly the only thing that Tolkien extends his justification and his apology to here. The reason why Niggle is an artist and why Niggle's art is recognized as being valuable is because it serves God. Because it serves as a way and an introduction to heaven. So first and foremost, the, art, the artist has to do that. Second, the artist has to be modest. They cannot get high on their own expertise. They cannot get self-important. They cannot use their art as an excuse for not doing other responsibilities. They cannot let their art get in the way of, the, of being a decent person. 
as much as Niggle is an artist, and as much as Niggle's artwork does great things, it is only because it is cooperative. Because he is working with Parrish, because he is working with God, because all of this is collaborative, that we end up with this work of art. Elsewhere, Tolkien very much emphasizes that an artist working completely under their own lights is usually pretty destructive and downright evil. Whether it's Melkor wandering off looking for the imperishable flame in the void, or whether it's Feanor like, self-aggrandizing himself when he creates the Silmarils, artists who get too caught up on their own art ultimately come to bad ends in Tolkien's work, and we should consider that evil and critical. This balance being discussed in Leaf by Miggle between pride and modesty is crucial for Tolkien. A modest artist is a good artist, and that modesty should come across in the work itself. But we should also emphasize that the person who does not appreciate art is themselves far from God. Parrish needs to appreciate art, appreciate Diggle's painting, before he can get into heaven. So on the one hand, we're being shown that art is useful to the heavenly order as a tool, but it is also a necessary skill in its own right. We are required to be artists. There are no non-artists for Tolkien. The people who aren't artists will eventually become artists. They will ultimately have some creative task to perform in the divine order. That is what humans are for, according to Tolkien. So if we are to look at Leaf by Niggle as being a prescriptive work of the ethics of art, what we need to understand are those three key points. First, that art is for revealing God's brilliance in the created order. Second, that we cannot let our pride get in the way of our modesty. And you will note a lot of the ethicists that we'll be talking about in future weeks are very much going to be putting artists on a pedestal. Watch out for that. And importantly, that we are all artists at heart. No one is excused. Parrish must become a good artist before he can ultimately go to heaven. This is a major requirement here. So with that in mind, that's our take on Leaf by Nagel. That's what I want us to take away. And it's been quite a lot. Like, there was a lot to unpack there. Um, and even then, I feel like I'm not doing justice to this because Tolkien leaves a lot of notes in the margins that we didn't ultimately get to. Um, but what I want to emphasize is, on the one hand, we're going to be doing a lot of this literary criticism, looking at the ethics implied by the artwork, sort of picking apart the details and seeing what these artists say about, you know, good, evil, God, Satan, you know, the organization of the universe and what a good person is versus what a bad person is. That's going to be something that we are dealing with in art a lot. And then honestly, you listen to like virtually any of my other lectures on literature and we'll be having that discussion. What is good and evil in the Iliad? What is good and evil in the Brothers Karamazov? What is good and evil in the Fahrenheit 451? You name it. Um, so yeah, Leaf by Nigel definitely falls into that category and def definitely has moral and ethical statements to be said. But we also need to recognize that Tolkien is policing himself here. Tolkien is justifying himself. Tolkien is encouraging himself to keep on working when nobody else thinks that he should. But at the same time, he is drawing boundaries, emphasizing that he cannot let himself become proud, self-important, or, you know, self-aggrandizing. His work is, at the end of the day, small. The best that Jesus says about it is a leaf by niggle is a thing in itself. A charm has a charm of its own. Um, that's... It. 
that is all Tolkien will allow. Because he knows and emphasizes here that if you let yourself get high on your own accomplishments, see this as anything but a gift, then you are already in grave danger of overstepping yourself and producing no art at all. Next time, we're going to dive into uh, Leo Tolstoy's essays on art. We're not going to deal with what is art just yet. I'm just going to be dealing with most of the writings that, uh, that Tolstoy produces about art before he gets there or shortly afterwards. Um, so with that in mind, the major essays that we're going to be looking at are his introduction to the complete works of Guy de Maupassant, um, which means we're going to probably want to read some Maupassant in addition to the uh, stuff that like Tolstoy has written himself. Um, you would probably, we'll also be looking at his essay on art, not what is art, that's again for later. Um, as well as his introductions to Der Butenbauer and an afterward to Chekhov's story Darling, as well as a few others there. Um, what I'm going to encourage that we read, uh, in addition to those essays, like if you are in fact looking for the supplementary reading, the other stuff that's going to become especially relevant as we're reading Tolstoy. Um, first of all, obviously you should probably read some of Tolstoy's own work. Uh, Anna Karenina is a pretty good book that I hope that most of us have read and know at this point, because that one's like one of the greatest, most famous novels ever written. Um, but I should also emphasize that Tol Tolstoy kind of has two major phases to his literary career. Um, and while you should definitely read like Anna Karenina because it's huge and important and a big deal and awesome, um, you would also be well served by reading some of his shorter stories, especially from the 23 Tales collection. Um, like, for example, God Sees the Truth But Waits, or A Prisoner in the Caucasus, um, both of which are especially useful in this case. Um, these are largely moral fables after Tolstoy's kind of conversion slash schism, whatever. Um, we'll talk about that conversion later, uh, probably when we're reading What is Art. Um, so, yeah, maybe look at some of his more recent works, like after 1884, after 1880 or after 1875 or so, um, in addition to some of his older stuff, because he'll be talking about it. Um, later, I'm going to encourage that you read Dostoevsky as well. Like, if you can't manage one of the big novels or haven't read one of the big novels, maybe tackle Notes from Underground if you've got the time, because um, that's not one that Tolstoy is especially interested in talking about, but it is a pretty good perspective on Dostoevsky, and it's one that we'll be running into again. Um, I should also, however, emphasize for next week's reading especially, we're going to be tackling quite a few essays that are on specific works of specific other authors. Um, so to try and like limit this from getting completely out of control, um, Tolstoy has an essay on Semyonov's peasant stories. The only one that I could find that was translated into English was uh, The Servant, which is readily available online. Just type in Semyonov, S-E-M-Y-O-N-O-V, um, The Servant, and you'll probably find it. Um, as well as we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Guy de Maupassant which I imagine most of us have not read Guy de Maupassant. I certainly have not spent a lot of time talking about Guy de Maupassant. Um, I've read a number of his short stories, but not a ton of them. Um, I will recommend, because I think that that's probably the best way of getting a pretty good overview of sort of the two sides to Maupassant. Um, try reading Boule de Suif. Um, it's literally, when it is translated, translated Ball of Fat. 
Um, it is a story about a prostitute um, named Boule de Suif, who is like adorable and lovely, and Maupassant says a lot of nice things about her. This is a super early work of Maupassant's, and very typical of his early career, where he's very interested in prostitutes and sex and stuff, and Tolstoy's very grumpy about it. Um, you might also want to read the classic story, A Piece of String, uh, which is short and nice, and definitely the sort of thing that Tolstoy is actually very appreciative of. Um, as well as you can track down the story Solitude, although it's not in the Gutenberg collection for some mad reason. Um, Solitude is another one that Tolstoy like especially picks out and praises here. Um, so being familiar with that one is also a good idea. Um, lastly, I would strongly recommend... This would be a great time to get familiar with Dickens, um, because Tolstoy is going to talk about Dickens quite a bit in later works, and we're going to keep coming back to Dickens and his moral agenda. Um, if you're going to read Dickens, I would recommend Oliver Twist or A Christmas Carol. Like, I know that everybody's read A Christmas Carol and everybody knows the story of A Christmas Carol, but literally just read it, because it's one of Dickens' best works, and it's one of the most finely written pieces of prose in the English language. Like, it's just friggin' gorgeous. Um, but as far as Dickens' sort of, like, social agenda, Oliver Twist is kind of perfect at showing all of the dimensions of what Dickens is doing in a pretty compact and entertaining way. Um, much easier to get into than, like, the old Curiosity Shop or Bleak House or something, even though that's probably even clearer there. Um, also, just wild side note, for some reason Tolstoy loves the example of Balaam in his ass. Um, from Numbers 23 and 24 in the Bible. Um, so I'd strongly recommend, like, if you are not familiar with the wild and wonderful story of Balaam's ass, definitely read Balaam and Numbers, like, 20 to 25-ish, um, because that'll definitely be helpful for reference as we're talking about these essays next time. I think he references it in, like, no fewer than three of the essays we're going to talk about, so definitely pick up on that. Um... But yeah, next week we're diving into Tolstoy's essays on art. Um, again, Guy de Maupassant especially, so read a couple of his short stories if you've never encountered them before. Um, and we'll talk about it next time, which I look forward to talking about Tolstoy, Maupassant, the Bible, all this stuff, as soon as we get to it. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress, we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.